0: You're listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast now on Google Play. With Connor Lovejoy, Assistant Editor. Brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas.
1: Hello, hello. My name is Connor, and I am joined here today by Jason Miller. Hey, Connor. Hello, Jason. Uh, Jason gave a presentation at the, well, he gave a variety of presentations at the Southwest Conference on Botanical Medicine, hosted by the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine and Health Sciences, and it ran from March 29th through the 31st. But specifically, I wanted to talk to Jason about a pre-conference intensive he did uh, before on March 28th. But just to give you know listeners a little bit of a backstory about Jason, Jason is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. He is a licensed acupuncturist, and he has over 10 years of clinical practice under his belt an impressive resume, uh, and he was also an impressive speaker. I was absolutely fascinated, and I know that everybody that left the uh, pre-conference intensive uh, left a lot more informed. So Jason, specifically during your presentation, you talked about how amyloid beta or beta amyloid accumulation can lead to disrupted nerve cell function, inflammation, and death of nearby nerve cells, which is associated with Alzheimer's disease. What is amyloid beta just for our listeners, and how does diet play a role in uh, combating its accumulation?
0: Well, thanks, Connor. It was really fun to have you at the conference. And uh, I think you were sitting kind of in the front row for most of the time there, and <laughs> you and I connected eye to eye a few times. And, That's true. Um, you know, it's a big topic, this you know, neuro- neurocognitive decline. And kind of the focus of, of the, the presentation was to take the traditional solutions and integrate them with modern scientific research, right? And kind of Kind of bridge that gap and create some sort of a, a new model for understanding that encompasses a wider perspective. And so part of that is, of course, digging into the science and, and uh, the science around Alzheimer's disease and the development of amyloid beta um, is a fascinating one. And I think you know you hit a pretty important point right at the off the, off the bat there, out of the gate, because mm-hmm. you know the concept in sort of the modern medical approach or biomedical approach to Alzheimer's disease is to you know, find a, a way to either help the body get rid of beta amyloid or not form it. Um, and so it's kind of been singled out as sort of a causative factor for you know, what is the underlying pathophysiology of the neurocognitive decline that we call Alzheimer's disease. And mm-hmm. so amyloid beta is a normal product in the brain, in The healthy brain, you, you know, build it up, you break it down and you clear it away and the thing it's not supposed to do is pile up between brain cells, you know. It can accumulate and harden into these insoluble plaques. And these insoluble plaques basically take up space in the, the neurological tissue that should be, you know, a free open space for conductivity of neurological impulses for the exchange of information. And then what you result is, is disrupted nerve cell function, more inflammation, and then death of nearby, nearby nerve cells. So the amyloid beta, this protein structure that builds up, you know, there's underlying factors to that. And it's part of the causes of that are tied to lots of things, um, you know, that we do in our lives. Part of my role in, in kind of approaching Alzheimer's disease is to try to not only help people clear away the all the beta amyloid they might have already, mm-hmm. which is a difficult job, because like I said, it hardens into these plaques, right? So it's not like a a soft malleable substance. No, it's like hard. So it's hard for the body to break it down. So really the place that we can do the most work, the most effective and significant work I think is in the preclinical work before it's developed into that hardened plaque as the, the underlying pathophysiological mechanisms are in place that are driving the body to make that beta amyloid. How do we alter that? Well, that's where I, you know, I kind of come
1: in. I found it fascinating, absolutely fascinating.
0: So there was also a, uh,
1: another part of your presentation. Well, first off, let me go ahead and preface this by saying that your presentation, this part of it dealt with uh, cannabidiol, CBD, which in uh, my industry here, the regulation and consumer uh, understanding Uh, is is a bit murky, you know, in 2019. But what is not murky, what you made abundantly clear in your presentation, is uh, the role that CBD plays in uh, combating uh, TBIs, traumatic brain injuries. Can you just speak to the science behind that, like how it uh, plays into the endocannabinoid system in the human body?
0: Yeah, of course, of course, you know, I I just, before before we jump off into that topic, I just was thinking that, you know, the the dietary piece of of Alzheimer's disease, you know, and how it plays into the development of the uh, amyloid beta, you know, to those plaques is actually, you know, such a huge factor. And I think, you know, we think about botanical medicine, we think about, you know, scientific research, how can we stop beta amyloid? How can we prevent it? How can we, you know, how can we break it down? How can we get it out of the body? you know, we don't need to go to drugs, we don't even need to go to, you know, intense botanical medicines. Really, diet is hugely influential when it comes to cognitive function and and how to influence cognitive decline, you know. I think that we look at the dietary insults that we're facing, you know, from just the genetic alteration of the food supply that's occurred over the last hundred years, maybe a little bit more than that. But, you know, we we are, those of us who are kind of skeptics in, in many ways, Around medicine and around you know food and economy and so forth, you look and you say, well, I I, I don't feel like we're, we really have a clear understanding of whether GMO foods are safe or not. So I'm going to avoid them for now. Of
1: course, now, that's a tricky, you know, tricky yeah,
0: right, right. And and I mean the the idea is you know GMO, right? Well, genetic modification doesn't require you to go in and you know pick up a piece of DNA with a little nano and insert it into some food to change it. You know genetic modification is happening over time by farmers selecting for specific cultivars and chemotypes of plants every year and even running shorter cycles to start to alter the genetics and alter the phenotype of those plants. And what we've done is we've genetically modified a lot of foods like soy and corn and oats and wheat and we've modified dairy and so these foods alone have become a big you know inflammatory source to drive that beta amyloid you know, the way we cook our foods, you know, where they come from, you know, things like refined sugars and carbs and all the kind of refined fats and trans fats and overcooked foods. Those are all big, big factors with lots of data behind them to show how they drive inflammation that can lead to the deposition of more amyloid beta, you know, and, wow. you know, some of those stuff I've been reading about lately is like, it's not so much about what you don't eat, that helps. It's really, really important that you eat good food. It's like, If you eat just bad food and you don't eat any good food it's really really hard on you but if you eat bad food and you eat good food you're not doing nearly as bad so it's like the the eating of fresh vegetables like seven to ten half cup servings of organic vegetables and fruits you know four to five times every day um you're just going to get so many polyphenols so many flavonoids so many basically medical compounds from the foods that are going to enhance your body's ability to you know, use beta amyloid in the appropriate ways, you know, get it out of the body more readily and not have that inflammatory immunological response that leads to Alzheimer's disease. That's incredible. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of, you know, just just make that point that, God, if we could just, you know, make the decision to change some of the things that we do on the basic level of, you know, what we eat and what we don't eat, we'll have a huge impact on Alzheimer's disease.
1: If people understood that a little goes a long way, a big
0: difference yes. can be made, essentially, right? Yeah, you know, and and it's like, oh, you know, mom said I got to eat my my Brussels sprouts. You know, all <laughs> these all these sort of cliche things, you know, like, oh, you know, hey, eat your kale. Hey, eat your spinach. You know, and and it's like, if you eat your spinach, you can have some of the pudding, or if you and and there's actually some wisdom to that. The modern research actually shows that that when you do eat those good foods that are rich in those healing compounds. Mm-hmm. that you actually can mitigate some of the, the issues you'd have if you just ate those so-called bad foods. That's incredible yeah <laughs> That's <insane>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, you that. you were just asking me about uh, about CBD right?
1: Yeah no, yeah. no that is absolutely true. I lost my uh, train of thought there for a second yes but I, I was asking you about CBD and and its effect on uh, traumatic brain injury specifically.
0: Yeah well I mean you know this has become a really remarkable kind of focal point in modern scientific research and where it really kind of overlaps with sports medicine. And, you know, TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, they have quite a spectrum, right, of of what can can happen. You know, it could be just a bump on the head, you don't even lose consciousness, but it's pretty hard hit and the brain takes a little bit of a shock in that moment but let's say you didn't go unconscious that's one la- level of a tbi and then as it progresses it's you know you get knocked unconscious then how long are you unconscious and then you can have open head injuries where the brain is exposed there's all kinds of things that can happen to the severity of that traumatic brain injury and you know we're always looking for solutions and what's been happening now in the field of sports medicine is looking at all these people and this also extends to the military right this is you know concussive um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, weapons, right, that, you know, and just loud and heavy and large, things that cause, uh, you know, lots of damaging impacts to the body, um, that these brain injuries that happen in these types of activities actually have a very powerful and negative effect on the long-term functioning of our brains. And that's where the science has been digging in and going, wow, you know, you look at these veterans and, you know, say for example, somebody's had, you know, several concussions as a military as active military personnel, they're going to actually have like a three to four times higher risk of developing cognitive decline than somebody who didn't. And that's just even if you didn't have uh, you know, a fully um, an unconscious concussion. But once you get into like loss of consciousness concussions, then mm-hmm. those, that amplification of the downstream effects of loss of cognition and you know, buildup of beta amyloid or of other inflammatory byproducts is higher and higher. And so we're always looking for ways to combat that. And we haven't found a lot of things that are helpful. Most of the drugs in the cognition realm are just, they have a lot of side effects and they're just not that effective. Mm-hmm. So CBD has come along, you know, as really kind of like this, this sort of standout molecule. And, and I'll just preface it by saying that CBD doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not an isolated molecule. It comes from cannabis sativa And specifically the hemp varieties, which are varieties that have less than 0.3% THC in them, that are varieties of cannabis that produce high amounts of CBD. And it's the CBD specifically in the complex of the other plant compounds, the flavonoids and the terpenes specifically, that that actually enhance the CBD effectiveness for doing what we're now seeing, uh, one of the actions of CBD, which is to mitigate damage in the brain. And so, you know, there's a lot of focal point right, right now in the scientific research around the endocannabinoid system, which is involved in brain trauma. And what's been kind of coming up recently is that during a traumatic brain event, such as a concussion, the levels of endogenous, that means you know, produced inside your body, cannabinoids mm-hmm. were elevated. And animal models have been used to, to study this, of course. Um, and I'm, I'm never a big proponent of animal, animal studies, but that's how we derive a lot of information. Of course. And, yeah, and as, as, as scientists have dug deeper into the role of cannabinoids, um, it looks like the reason that they're elevated is because there's a protective mechanism that they are a part of. That's the endocannabinoid receptor network, especially the CB2 receptors and CB1 receptors, those two that we've been studying the most, CB1 receptors that are really nestled into the neurological tissue of the body and CB2 receptors all over the immune system, those two types of receptors, both are involved in this sort of inflammatory control And CBD has a a wonderful effect because the research shows that it's those endogenously produced cannabinoids that result in this protective effect. The two main ones, is one called anandamide and one is called 2-AG. And CBD has the ability to enhance the body's production of these endogenous molecules that have this protective role. It's really pretty fascinating and it's led to some deeper studies that are coming out now where even there's a there's a study that's going to be held this summer starting with 100 former pro hockey players that all have suffered from brain trauma that are gonna be studied basically for the effect of CBD on their headaches, emotional instability, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and pain. And so they'll all be taking CBD pills for per a period of one year and then taking that information and looking at the results. And it's really exciting to see you know, that we actually have an, a system in our bodies the endocannabinoid network that is there to help mitigate inflammation and protect us from traumatic brain injuries. And then we have an external compound now, cannabidiol, CBD, with its you know, hemp-derived plant, polyphenols, terpenes, flavonoids, that all work together to mitigate damage. I think that's just fascinating. I'm really excited to be kind of a part of that it's that movement in medicine.
1: That is so wild. Uh, I myself am a huge uh, hockey fan, and I just never put two and two together that, like you are talking about, we have you know, veterans and they're facing concussive blasts and they're facing, you know, tr- brain injuries on the regular, but so, so are athletes, of course. And I never put two and two together that a lot of hockey players are facing uh, CTE issues, you know, brain trauma, and I think they would be a phenomenal group to target, which is why this study is probably taking place. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. So there were, there were so many different plants that you, uh, that you touched on that had serious effects on cognitive health in your presentation. Can you speak to some of their efficacy and the studies behind some of them? I mean, you listed almost like 10, maybe over 10, but could you provide me just, uh, you know, with listeners, just a little bit of a short list on uh, some, some superstars that you'd like to put the spotlight on?
0: Oh, certainly. Absolutely. And I mean, just, I think I probably listed 30, but, you know, some of them were (laughs) more lists and some of them were highlights, right? Um, And I I think that, you know, one of them I want to say that stands out, you know, to me um, is Mukuna Parians. And Mukuna Parians is an herb that uh, comes out of the Ayurvedic medicine tradition. And it's the richest naturally occurring source of L-dopa that we know of on earth. It's a plant that, you know, makes L-dopa. And L-dopa is the precursor to dopamine and if you if you know a little bit about the physiology of surrounding parkinson's disease then you'll know that it's a disease that relates to the degradation of dopamine receptors and the inability of the body to, to get enough dopamine to affect the neurons and have its dopaminergic effect on the musculoskeletal system and there's lots of neurological downstream effects from that dopaminergic network and what's fascinating is that in the in the realm of Parkinson's disease, there's a lot of medically derived pharmaceutical applications that are now basically standard of care, the main one being Sinemet, and it's basically levodopa, it's a synthetic form of L-dopa, and L-dopa is a precursor to dopamine, like I said, but what happens is when people use that synthetic form of L-dopa over time, they generally have a loss of response and a further degradation of their neurons. And so you get a really nice response up front. But then, you know, five, seven years down the road, you start losing efficacy. And that's not that's not really it's not acceptable for a person who is, you know, 65 years old, wants to live a nice, long life. And they're having serious uh, symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Of so along comes Mukuna. And it again, like I was talking about with the CBD and hemp, it's this matrix of a plant together all the compounds that make up an orchestra of synergistic plant materials that have nestled in them this L-DOPA molecule. And you can take it and you can get enough L-DOPA into the body to actually inhibit the dopaminergic deficiency symptoms that we see in Parkinson's. And I've been using this, a system for use, for, for applying um, mucuna perians as a powder mm-hmm. in anywhere between a five and 15% L-DOPA concentrated sort of standardized extract with a few other plant compounds and things and with great success in Parkinson's patients. And I just want to say again, it's back to that, like the magic of the plants that it's, it's all science when it comes down to it. You look at it, you can break it apart and see the molecules that are there and L-DOPA being a central one, but you don't need to isolate that compound and then give it to the person as a synthetic isolated molecule, you actually lose some of the efficacy. When you have the mucuna, the results are more profound, that they're going to, you know, the results are going to be long, long lasting. None of my patients that I've been working with now, even in that five to seven range, year range, have had any degradation. They're all able to, you know, use a stable amount of mucuna in combination with other nutrients and things and, and get great results. Uh, that, that plant to me is just really fascinating. And, and one of the research studies that came out in a neurological journal in 2017, used the preface of or the pretense of, um, you know, how do we get L-DOPA to underserved communities and cultures around the world where people are suffering from Parkinson's as part of the neurocognitive decline um, when they can't afford, you know, Cinnamet or Levodopa. And the study was saying, hey, look at this plant. It works great. Let's start getting it to people. They can grow it themselves. It's a bean. They can... Cook it. They can powder it. They can take it, and they can get great results. That's and I took insane. that as wow. This is fascinating. How this plant actually, you know, can be a great um, choice for people who are even in more, um, you know, wealthy communities and cultures to be able to use something that has, again, that whole plant effect, the safety, long term. So, you know, that's my first one I pick out. I think maybe number two for this talk is is Huperzia serrata which is, uh, you know, a plant that's also been used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years. And it's a, a club moss, specifically, and it's really rich in a compound we've, we've found called huperzine A. Huperzine mm-hmm. A has some specific effects on the cholinergic system in the body. And when I say cholinergic, it's the, 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 the neurological system in the body that uses acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter to conduct neurological impulse from one place to another. Why that's important is because acetylcholine is the main neurotransmitter. I mean, the the bulk of the neurological activity is acetylcholine and it controls muscle activity all over the body. It also controls memory, it controls mood, it controls so many different things that, you know, whenever we need to conduct some sort of energetic exchange, acetylcholine is almost always involved. It's also involved in Parkinson's disease, like I said. So hoppersia serrata and it's hoppersine A is specifically what's called an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. That's kind of a long word, Mm -hmm. but basically what it means is it stops the body from breaking down acetylcholine and allows the acetylcholine to hang around inside the synapses, the connecting point between two neurons, Longer, so it keeps stimulating and sending the message longer, and that's really important when that cognitive decline system is coming on, especially in Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Acetylcholine is a place where we've been targeting people, have been trying to find you know drugs to be able to stop that breakdown of acetylcholine so we could, could keep that neural conduction going on, like you know, you're trying to find that word, you know, dementia. People who have dementia, or especially mild cognitive impairment, impairment often starts with, "God, what's the name of that guy?" You know, okay, it was uh, he was in that movie. No, it was like okay, it was like um, it was about oh, I can't remember the. You know what I mean? It just kind of goes yeah, on. Yeah, exactly you can't what quite, you're saying. Yeah, can't quite finish the pathway, right? Can't quite mm-hmm. make it there. So it's like acetylcholine helps to finish the pathway, you keep going along that memory path till you end up where you're, you know, where you're supposed to land, find the word that you're searching for. And so acetylcholine is part of that conduction of that neurological energy to get you to where you're going, and huperzine A can enhance that specifically. And so, again, use the whole plant, huperzia serrata, combine it with the huperzine A as an isolate, you can get a real directed effect. Wow. And especially in the case of you know, Alzheimer's, we don't have any good pharmaceutical options. You know All the, the drugs that we're you know, using right now, they don't have a very long you know, uh, duration of effect. They, they tend to have a lot of side effects. They're just not that effective. So it's nice to have other options. I think, you know, you and I were talking maybe at the conference about one of my favorite herbs, you know, Panax ginseng. Everybody knows about ginseng. It's oh, like, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know ginseng, right? It's like, oh, it's ginseng, right? <laughs> but I, I don't know that people really understand just how powerful of an herb it is. It's, um, it's got such a long history of use in traditional Chinese medicine, especially, but in other places around the world also. And as, as kind of like a primary adaptogen, as a Taoist longevity herb, it's it's has this kind of mystical connotation on it that it's, it's it gets to this place that's that what they call in Chinese medicine the source qi, kind of like where your body's converting its essential substances into whatever it needs to be, all the neurotransmitters, hormones, all those things. But ginseng gets right into that place and actually enhances that conversion. Now that's kind of like you know, an extrapolation from Chinese medicine to modern science, but I like it because what we see with ginseng, as it is in Chinese medicine, as a tonic, a a, Mm -hmm. a building and strengthening herb for the spleen and the kidney, we get into this group of compounds that are called the saponins. They're also ginsenocides. Mm -hmm. And the ginsenocides have been studied now for their incredible effects on improving mental performance, especially during stress, helping concentration, when people are old or fatigued, mm-hmm. being an anti aging tonic, um, protecting the brain, having neuroprotective properties, and, and great for, you know, diseases around neuronal loss. And there's a lot of research, a lot of data that's been gathered with Panax ginseng. And I think I put up a slide during the you know, during the conference. I might have had like um, seven or eight just human studies with Panax ginseng showing, you know, it prevents beta amyloid. It increases learning capacity, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to put it out there that some of these you know, herbs and things that are just sort of like, oh, yeah, household name, yeah, panics, ginseng, it's hard to believe just how powerful they are and how important they are. And it's sort of like the idea of a cliche, right? It's like, oh, that's so cliche. Well, true. Why is it cliche? Because a lot of people said, oh, wow, that's true for me. Of you know? course. Yeah. And so I kind of feel like the same thing with ginseng. It keeps coming up because it keeps having an incredible amount of value
1: it kind of crazy how much science is actually behind it you know plus tea in general everybody says you know drink more tea drink more tea but now you see really why ginseng is <laughs>
0: ginseng is important it's vital well, and you, you bring up a good point because i think i also i mean green tea I green tea yes I, yeah i can't <laughs> get away from it it's like every topic that i want to cover everything i want to like you know okay i want to find what are all the plants that are so great for such and such disease it's like oh green tea Oh, Keeps right. his head. cancer. Oh, green tea. Oh, <laughs> oh, neurological health. Oh, green tea. Oh, cardiovascular health. Oh, there's green tea. I mean, it's just it's just everywhere because it's so powerful. And and it's it's also just the simple thing that's tradition. You know, think about turmeric. Right. Think yeah, about of green course. Tea. You know, these are two of the most commonly consumed substances over in Southeast Asia. Right. And in Asia in general. And they are so profoundly beneficial for human health. And it just brings up that kind of idea that, wow, you know, even though we didn't have the molecular science, we figured out what was good for us. And that's really cool. I like starting with what we did in the past and and thinking, you know, we've done a lot of good things in the past. Let's take that as a starting point and let's study from there. Let's not study from, you know, sort of like, what do we need? We need something that does this. We need this kind of molecule. We need, no, let's start with what did people do? And, and then you start saying, oh, they had a reason for doing that. They grew like up you said, that.
1: it's not just a cliche. There's there's legitimate science behind it. But, of course, back then they couldn't really, uh, they didn't have the means to, you know, perform studies.
0: Right, exactly. It was all, you know, it was called empirical data, right, where you you do something and you watch what happens over time, and then you repeat it, you know. And in Chinese medicine, they had empirical data that was literally based on, Millions of doctors treating billions of patients over thousands of years. There's something there. Wow.
1: Absolutely incredible. So you also, at the end of your presentation, you had a bit of a jokey type slide about the effects of alcohol, coffee, uh, and chocolate, and uh, you know, exercise on the effects of neurocognitive health and stuff, uh, three wrongs and a right. Uh, what, was, what was all
0: that about? Oh, wrongs and a right. I like it. Well, it was basically about the fact that there have been a number of studies that have come out just in recent years, especially where the use of alcohol, you know, smaller amounts, one to two cups a day, Mm -hmm. coffee, one to two cups a day, chocolate, two to four ounces, that these things can actually, in small amounts, inhibit dementias, improve brain health and extend lifespan. Mm -hmm. Now. I mean, for all of us out there who love to come home from work and have a glass of wine, love to have a <laughs> cup of coffee in the morning, yes. or love to eat a piece exactly. of chocolate when we want to feel good about ourselves, you know, um, that there's, there's data support that these things can actually be beneficial. And I think it comes back to the, the age old idea that, you know, it's moderation. You know? And if you want to get into this stuff, there's studies that have come out over the past 10, 15 years from a number of different places, anywhere from the Lancet Journal to uh, the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition, some of the other things like the American uh, Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, trusted journals uh, there. Uh-huh. Yeah, those trusted journals that have basically pumped out lots of information that's trustworthy. They've done their diligence. And so there's something to be said there that small amounts of these substances could be really helpful. And just to extend the alcohol one a little bit further, mm-hmm. it ties into the, the kind of the, the third point of your question, which is really, you know, what about exercise? And interestingly enough is that there was a study that came out in Scotland. It was in 2016, and it took 36,000 men and women, about 40 years old, and they looked at the association between alcohol consumption and cancer and mortality risk. And I, I use that as a, a surrogate for neurocognitive decline, because as you see, with a lot of these, these issues around cancer, cardiovascular disease, and neurocognition, you're mm-hmm. gonna see that a lot of the same areas are affected or out of balance in people who suffer from these conditions. It's just the variation of each individual and how they manifest dis-ease. But the the interesting thing was that the association between alcohol intake and mortality risk was attenuated, meaning it was inhibited, mitigated, softened, or even completely nullified with people who met the physical activity recommendations that were used in the study, which was basically two and a half uh, hours of physical activity per week if you did two and a half hours of physical activity good strong exercise you could drink moderately and have no more risk of getting cancer than somebody who didn't drink
1: my mouth is open right now i cannot believe that
0: isn't that amazing that is absolutely amazing so crazy you know and and i was going to say back in chinese medicine early days wine was an herb and it still is today it's you know rice wine was used or sorghum wine they made that specifically and they would consider it a a substance that invigorated the blood, to kind of moved blood, so get blood out of stagnant areas, so new blood can come in, right? And mm-hmm. they used it that way. They'd combine it with other herbs and say, here, take a little bit of rice wine with this to to make it more moving, more invigorating to the body. But if you move too much, you can be depleting. So it's all about that balance again. It's just the right amount. Moderation. So exercise mm-hmm. is going to be phenomenal for us, you know, in preventing disease and especially neurocognition. You know, brain and vascular health depends on blood flow oxygenation. And if you move your body, you move the blood, you're going to get more blood flow to the brain. You're going to clear out all the negative, all the, you know, byproducts of immunological activity, all the breakdown products, inflammatory, oxidative compounds, and you're going to get new fresh blood into those areas for healing.
1: That's fascinating, all this research behind all these things that are just taken at face value, especially in, you know, Western society and stuff. If people saw these actual studies and saw the numbers and, and uh, you know, the studies over time, I think people would start to change their tone about it and not treat it so casually or especially with alcohol, coffee and chocolate, you know, take it in excess and stuff. I think they'd be a lot more careful about it.
0: I agree. Absolutely.
1: All right, Jason. I just want to thank you. Your your presentation was phenomenal. It was an absolute joy having you here today.
0: Likewise, Connor. Thanks so much for being there and for inviting me on your show. I really appreciate it. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the health and nutrition industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud account. This episode has been brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas.